Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of your time with us today. So excited to have you here and even more excited to share two conversations today with the two fam sisters, the genius duo behind the brand Amsam, celebrating the rich cultures of food that represent a large part of Asia. Vanessa and Kim are two sisters of Vietnamese who have banded together um, in their post-college and post-early careers uh, to start a family business together. Um, two sisters starting as a food startup together. On today, or I guess in the early episode of episode 58, we're going to talk to the younger sister, Vanessa, about her journey through college and through consulting and how she ended up starting this business with her older sister, Kim, who will join us on the next episode on 59. And on Friday, we're going to bring them back together to have a two-sister discussion on what it really is like to build a family business together with sisters in doing something that is so culturally important and relevant in our community today. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Vanessa Pham. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Eurasian Americans. I uh, hope you're doing well, wherever you are, uh, wherever you may be. Um, and I'm frustrated that I've made that comment to kick off the show going now for three months. Um, but we're right at the end of June here as we're recording this with Vanessa and things are not looking good in most of the country. Um, most of the world is looking really good. Most of the country, not so much. So please continue to stay home. Please continue to wear masks. And um, the faster we get through this, or I guess the faster we um, put our brains together, put our hearts together and do what's right for all of us that we can get through these and we can have these conversations in person. Perhaps we can all get together and uh enjoy each other's company through events and whatnot. And, you know, one of the things that we miss dearly, dearly, dearly in these challenging times is the ability to gather with friends and family in particular, and all cultures in general, but in particularly our Asian and Asian American culture, the thing that really brings family together is food and not just any food, but food that we long for when we're sick or um, longing for home or even hungover. It's that thing that is almost a characteristic of our DNA that says that food reminds me of home. And for many of us, we've never even been home to our home countries, but it is that food that is really built into our DNA. So really excited to share this conversation with Vanessa Pham, who is one of the two co-founders of Amsam. Um, as before, uh, we did with the Kim Brothers of Soul Sausage. This is going to be a three-part show. We're going to talk to Vanessa first, then we're going to talk to Kim uh, a little bit after, and then we'll bring the two sisters back together to chat about maybe some things that they knew about each other's story or some new uh, revelations and some fun stories. So, uh, Kim, uh, sorry, Vanessa, welcome <laughs> to the show. Thank you so much, Sherry. So excited to be here. Was like was so honored when you reached out because I love love what you're doing and have had some friends on the show as well as folks that we just deeply admire. So it's excited to be here and, and chat. That's awesome. And as we did with uh, Ted, um, I am a I am the the younger of two siblings as well. So we always uh, as second children, we always have the second children go first. So. Um, <laughs> Welcome to the show. Uh, I love what you're doing. You know, we'll, we'll start off with sort of, um, I'll brag on behalf of the fam sisters because I think you guys are awesome. Uh, recently, you guys have been featured in Today, in Thrillist, in Eater, in Forbes, in TechCrunch, in Food and Wine. The list goes on and on and on. And I think it's particularly cool because in light of all that's going on, um, you know, 2020 was sort of with a parasite, with Aquafina, with all these things, supposed to be a big year for us, right? The big year of the Asian American, uh, not even a renaissance, because there's nothing to renew, but like just the coming out party for a lot of these badass Asian Americans being successful in a lot of different things. And you doing what you're doing with Amsam, I think, is going after a market and a part of the culture and lifestyle that really hadn't been explored. So kudos to you. Um, it's so awesome. It is really, really awesome. Um, I, I don't, I will leave the, uh, the question and answer and then ask you to explain the behind the story and all these cool things that are happening in the universe in light of not being able to go make the appearances in person, not being able to do, a lot of the, the the things in person that we would normally like to do. Um, 
So today we know you as a co-founder of Amsam. You're being featured in all these great magazines that really accentuate and honor not just the work of the two fam sisters, but the generations of our families and our culture that has actually led to you creating this. Um, so let's explore that a little bit. Um, share with us the history of the fam story as Vietnamese American folks um, here in the States. When did your family uh, immigrate or you know move to the States? Um, where did you guys first land? And tell us a little bit about your earlier years. Yeah, absolutely. And and I totally agree that going back to those roots is like really truly the beginning of Omsom. Um we joke that this this company has been in the making for, you know, 26 years, but it even goes before that if if I'm being honest and I think uh, my family history and and how I was raised is a huge part in kind of what we're building and why we do what we do. Um uh, so uh we're Kim and I are both Vietnamese Americans. Um we're the daughters of Vietnamese refugees. Um, both of our parents came around like 1980 or so. Um, and they came separately. So my dad came here because our grandfather on my dad's side was in the Southern army. Um, and so, you know, my dad knew that he had no future in Vietnam and, and had to come to the States for, um, a chance at a life that he thought, you know, would have opportunity basically. Mm. So um, he came to the U.S. He worked his butt off when he got here. And I was really raised on these stories. Um, something that's really interesting about my parents is that they never raised us with like discipline or heart. You know, um, they, they weren't like helicopter parents at all. They were very hands off, but they told us these stories growing up that just got me. They really shaped the way I see myself and the way that I see our family in this world. And mm-hmm. um, some of these stories are, you know, my dad coming to the U S and him, he, he, we would like be driving around in Boston and he'd be like, Oh, this is the bridge that, uh, you know, like one year into being in Boston um, after receiving Vietnam, my mom sent me a letter, um, you know, telling like asking how I'm doing. And I cried on this bridge reading it. And then I said, I need to be stronger. I, you know, I need to work hard for my family. I need to save money. And so I ripped up the letter and threw it into the water here um, because I needed to find the strength. And I told myself to stop being a, a you know, a baby about this stories like that, or our stories about um, how, when he came to the U S he got $300 from Catholic charities, USA. And he spent half of it to get to Boston because in Vietnam, he had heard this is the city of education, Um, got to Boston, started at community college, worked really hard, um, and then was able to transfer to a state school and then worked really hard and then was able to transfer to Boston University. Um, And then from there, he tried to get into MIT. And they told him that, you know, his English wasn't good enough among some other, probably other reasons as well. And so he didn't end up getting accepted. And so what he did was wait outside of different um, classrooms for the professor to come out after class. And he would beg them if he could just like, you know, just can I just sit in the back of the classroom? I won't ask questions. I won't say a word. I just want to learn. And so those were the types of stories that um, I was raised on and really shaped my motivation and kind of my ambition, um, today. That's cool. That is, wow. Um, cause Boston is not a particularly a place, a city where many immigrants, refugees end up at. Um, but that is so cool that using education as his compass or the pursuit of education as his surf, um, compass, that's where he ended up. And I guess you fulfilled his ultimate mission by going to a school in Boston that um, many people consider to be, you know, uh, um, a, a marquee of, of success and of a highest education. So um, congrats, uh, congratulations to you on that as well. Um, tell me about some of the earlier influences you had in your family. Um, obviously, we know now that you run this amazing business uh, steeped in food and culture with your sister. Um, how big of a influence was family and food for you guys growing up? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, food was one of the main ways that we kind of engaged with our identity and um, shared it out with it with others. So basically, you know, my parents came from Vietnam, they met in the Boston area, and then they raised us in the Boston area. And we grew up in a town that was 98.5% white. It was Irish, Italian, Catholic. It was a really hard place to grow up as a, as a Vietnamese American. Um, 
And so, you know, food, I, I definitely had the story that a lot of people, um, Asian Americans had, which is like, I was kind of ashamed of my food growing up. Mm. I, you know, you know, the stinky lunches, you know, the deal. And, um, and then now, like kind of building a whole company around reclaiming that and being proud and loud about that. Like, I, I feel like that's all related um, in, in some way. So mm. definitely growing up um, in this hometown was a weird, was a weird and, and tough place to grow up. Although I ended up making it work and, and, and now I have so many dear friends from this hometown, but I think it was an exercise in figuring out like who, what I stood for and who, what, who I was, like what was my identity at a very early age. I think a lot of other kids can kind of put that off and just be kids for a long right. time. And I had to find a way to define who I was um, really early on. I was forced mm -hmm. to. And so ultimately kind of, I think where I landed at an early age was realizing, you know, by the time I like was in high school, I shouldn't try to fit into this mold of the small kind of hometown. I shouldn't try to fit into this this mold of being, you know, like all everybody else, Irish Italian Catholic, like white picket fence, right. all that. But I also shouldn't try to fit into this mold of being like all my, you know, Vietnamese cousins. My parents raised us really differently than a lot of them. We, we were not all, there were a lot of things I didn't identify with from their experience as well. And I, I just ultimately came to um, come into my own identity independent of, of, a reference point almost just like kind of what I like to do, how I like to spend my time, um, how I treat people. Um, those are the things that I ultimately kind of had to anchor around at a pretty early age, um, to, to survive and, and, and know who I was. Right. So you have an older sister who's two years older than you are. Um, talk to me about some of the earlier experiences with her. Um, I think often, my my brother's um, about a year older than I am, and and so when you have siblings that are that close, um, it's sometimes hard as the younger one to forge your own identity, or you know, and as a parent now of two kids that are about two and change apart, it's really hard to. It's easy to do make them do the same things, right? Like buy one toy, play together, right? And it's, <laughs> as we know, as as we grow older and we discover our own identities you know, the independence and sort of the nurturing as one's own is a little bit of a challenge from a parent's perspective. You're curious to hear um, some of the earlier experiences that you had with Kim. And in particular, when she left for college, um, after your sophomore year, um, you had those two years, and, and she went to school in New York. So she was out of the house physically and out of Boston. Um, did that change your relationship with your parents at all in being the one child left at home? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I think that with Kim, you know, my sister, we were really different early on. We already started to kind of just become different people. And actually so funny, recently we were asking our dad to send us photos from childhood and my gosh, like you can see how different we are in those photos. Like you can see, I mean, I, some of the things that make us really different, like I said, like she's really this kind of creative free thinking, like, yeah, things outside of the box type of person. And I'm much more like strategic and analytical and structured in my thinking. Um, and then I'm also like really competitive or like not competitive. I'd rather, I'd say more, I'm pretty tough on myself and like kind of adamant about my, like driving my own performance, um, in a, in a very motivated way. And she's a little bit more go with the flow and like, she's good at recognizing things that are out of her control, for example. And so there's these pictures of me at like my fourth birthday party and there's a pinata and there's her kind of walking up to it and like kind of haphazardly like knocking it. There's a picture of me like two years younger than her, like fully going at it. Like you can see <laughs> in my face, like the determination, like I will get that candy. Um, and I think like, yeah, our differences started, started really early on. Um, as far as forging our own paths, I think, what we ended up doing was just kind of diverging and continuing to diverge as far as mm. um, many, in many ways who we are and our personalities. I think at like in our core, like our hearts and our values are very much in the same place, which is why mm. building a company together made a lot of sense for us because, yeah. you know, on, on one hand we were like, well, we're just going to constantly challenge each other. We're going to bring really different perspectives to the table um, and we're going to probably come out with better ideas for it. Um, but at the same time, like our very North star, I think is aligned and that's really um, important for us. 
did you guys do stuff together a lot growing up? Yes, we did a lot of, we did, when we were kids, we did like everything together. So if you go on our website, there's like a lot of childhood photos in the like meet us section. And we're like, we, we wore the same exact outfits every day. We had the same exact <laughs> haircuts, like my parents, bowl cuts, obviously my parents would have it no other way. Uh, so we did a lot together growing up, but I would say like, as soon as we kind of like, I don't know, hit hit like middle schoolish or like even elementary school. We obviously had our own friend groups and all that. We still hung out all the time. Um, and then like, I think as you asked earlier about when she went off to college, me being alone with the parents. Yeah. I definitely think I, that that was an interesting time where I, I spent, I spent a lot of time kind of developing my relationship with them. And then even going to school in Boston, them being nearby I got to spend a lot of time with them over those four years in ways that kind of Kim didn't get to as she was in New York City so um I do think that that was uh, a meaningful time for for me and my parents to to build a friendship like I, I mean they my sister and my parents also have a really strong friendship but I do feel like during that time I got to kind of be an adult while building right. the relationship was a, which is unique than when you were in the house building the relationship and mm. they were more just adamant about you getting home at a certain time. Um, you know, in college they had to let that go. And so the the time that I spent getting to know them and spent and build our friendship in college was super meaningful. That's very cool. Um, let, let's focus on your own journey for a little bit. So you mentioned that in high school you had this epiphany or sort of a, um, a, a light bulb moment where in terms of your identity, and I think many of us go through it, um, and, and unfortunately, it's no fault of our own. It's the um, the stimuli that are around us that convince us or to nudge us to want to equate success or happiness with what we see not only on TV but in real life. Um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a town that was ninety eight point five percent white. Um, I can't imagine um, feeling that way. Um, I did spend some time in in small towns after I graduated college, working in, in towns like that, and you're just it was hard for me to deal with it as a 21 year old. So can't imagine how much harder it is as adolescents trying to find your own self and, um, you know, going to do, I don't know, going to X school or having Y job also looking like somebody else is how we are then conditioned to think like that's the path. Right. Um, what did you want to do once you started, uh, finding out some of those things about yourself in terms of forging your own path? Um, you ended up staying in Boston to attend Harvard University. Um, what did you want to do going in and what was your sort of your goal coming out of it as your viewpoint going into college? Yeah, I mean, so I'll first talk about it just from a standpoint of, I guess, like my personal like mission from from an identity perspective. Like, And then I can talk about, I guess, like more tactically mm -hmm. what that looked like with career and all that. But I think growing up, what I didn't even realize um, that I was kind of ascribing to was this overall expectation around basically like assimilation and trying to become a part of, of the broader community and, and mirror the broader community. Like, I think from a survival perspective for my parents as refugees, like that wasn't an option for them. That felt like right. the only way forward and the only way potentially up if they had a chance at that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think at a young age, I, I thought that that was what I was like, what was critical for me. And so there wasn't this understanding or true appreciation of my identity. Um, like, obviously I love eating Vietnamese food. That, that part was always consistent. I was always like, y'all are missing out. Like Boomba Hue is the shit. And like, uh, I knew that much, but besides that, like, I definitely, like my parents told me I was like four years old. I came home from school one day and they were like, speak to us in Vietnamese. And I was like, why do I have to speak? I was like three years old. Why do I have to speak to you in Vietnamese? Nobody speaks Vietnamese. Even the bus driver doesn't speak Vietnamese mom and dad. The bus driver doesn't speak it. And they were like, what? Like, what is that point? Like, I don't even understand that. But that was me not understanding, like, what's the point of preserving this wonderful culture right. and this identity? Um, and so I think the biggest shift, there are two big shifts that I, I, ha I had in college, two big realizations. I think one was me coming into my pride for my identity and my culture um, and a deep hunger to share it and to um, be proud of it and have people know that I was proud of it. 
um, that was that was really important for me as I as I um, entered into college and started to understand what this meant when I started meeting people of diverse backgrounds and seeing kind of people share theirs. And then I started to explore what that could look like for me. And then it, it, from there, it just felt really natural and really important. Um, so that was the first, I would say, like big realization that I had throughout my years at in, in university. And then the other was around Honestly, like, I, I'm so glad there's discussion about it now, but I had my own coming to terms with the model minority myth in college. Like, I barely knew the, the word, like, right phrase for it until later on because I studied sociology, so we definitely studied it. But early on in college, I had a major shift in my understanding of upward mobility in the U.S. Um, I'll never forget when I graduated high school, they had us do these... Um, like senior scrapbooks where you like put in your major essays and photos from your past couple of years. And one of the assignments was top 10 things that we should know about you. And, you know, one was like, I like running track, like, you know, whatever. And by the time I got to nine and 10 and they were much more heartfelt. And I remember number nine was, I believe that in this country, anybody that works um, hard will get what they deserve. And number 10 was, my parents are a testament to that. And I, that was like, I believe that's my core. And like, I made those nine and 10 cause I was like, that's me. And I remember I started studying sociology and I, uh, I started learning about the structures, the institutions and the history in this country. And I remember being like, Oh my yeah. God, I am sorely mistaken. <laughs> I am so I am well intentioned, but man, am I misguided? Um, and that's that was to me was when I realized, like, wow, I am benefiting from being a model minority. Um, for you know, for Black Americans, that that upward mobility is is absolutely not accessible in the same way. Right. In fact, it is is actively um, um, held at bay through those mm -hmm. institutions and those structures and, and, and culture. And, and um, so it was a huge learning experience for me. And um, that's something that I, yeah, I care deeply about and have thought about a lot about since, especially cause I had that shift, like a yeah. complete shift um, from what I was raised on. I, to me, that is more fascinating than anything else part about your story because Harvard of all places is the meritocracy ladder Right. It, it is a stop on the meritocracy ladder that so many people, particularly immigrant and refugee parents, point to and say, mm -hmm. if only you can go there, then paradise, then X, Y, Z job, then status, then, you know, all these things that they equated with success. And again, contextually in post-war Vietnam or in even a little bit further post-war Korea, where a lot of my parents and my grandparents conditioned themselves on their definitions of success. That was it. Go to the right school, study your ass off, do nothing else but study, go to the right school, get the right letters after your name, and then life gets good. And I think in an instate, unstable environment, politically, financially, that might make more sense than it does today. Um, but the fact that you have those realizations at a place where most people go there and most people aspire to go there because they believe it is the solution to their problems, not a stop along their journey. It, it is fascinating. It reminds me of a conversation that we had with another Harvard sociology grad on the show, who uh, Renee Tajima Pena, who produced the PBS documentary um, Asian Americans. You know, she talked about that and, you know, she shares a story where you know, the, her, her very like orientation before school started, they were demonstrating in the provost or the administrator's office to demand ethnic studies as an option in Harvard, which still doesn't really exist today, sadly. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where you, not you, but people who have access and have the privilege of standing in those institutions and the perspective to then say, even with this, I don't think it's right. Because the people who don't have access to those institutions, those boardrooms, those you know power circles, can always say, "Well, if I can only achieve that, then perhaps I can get what I want." Right? And on the flip side, unfortunately, there are many people who sit in those halls, have those degrees. They say, "I'm only here because I worked hard. See, I went to the right school. See, I have the right job," and and they sort of miss the point of that's only a small part of it. 
and it's perhaps the confusion between you know attribution whether it's i am successful because of xyz or i am successful despite xyz i i think that realization is something that I, I like you said we are having more discussions about particularly in the last month or so um because of unfortunate circumstances but coming out of it i hope that we become a little bit more um not only aware and educated but okay and encouraging to talk about these things that we don't um, shy away from these conversations as not to offend mm. um, the people who we quote unquote wanted to assimilate into. Um, and so I, I think that's fascinating. Um, so I, I put you on this giant like moral pedestal because you had these epiphany moments in high school and then in college. Um, and then you're going to go work for a consulting company. What, what was it? <laughs> what was um not, not to you know what, what was the logic i guess what was your thought process long term of going to bain and the things that you wanted to learn yeah um and was doing something on your own always part of one of the things that you wanted to do later and what was the intention in learning or as absorbing as much as you can in that short amount of time in a very highly competitive highly um capitalistic go, go, go culture that consulting yeah. is. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things that is, is really baffling about me and my story that I'm still trying to unpack is that I have no idea why, or I do know. I mean, I know, I think I know why, but I'm still trying to understand like why I have been kind of developed. I, I've started, I had developed a lot of these traits around like what you would think, like a lot of stereotypical Asian kids, deal with when they have helicopter parents, which is like being super hard on yourself, like being super risk averse, like wanting to only attach yourself to like the success in the most traditional means, mm. looking for the next hoop to jump through and being like almost like robotic and tunnel visioned in that. Like I have struggled with a lot of, of that world. Mm. And the crazy thing is my parents never asked that of us. My parents raised us on those stories, just like kind of glorifying like hard work and education but they were never like they never mentioned like harvard or you know the way that i know a lot of um parents and asian parents can do um and so it's interesting because my sister is not like me at all and i've said that before but in this dimension as well like she she's very successful in her of her own right but she has not taken that kind of kind of um, intense intensity and ruthlessness around her drive and motivation in the way that she, ha I have her, her success to me has looked effortless. Maybe she can tell you more about that, but she seems to just like <laughs> run into it. And, and I'm over here, like ever since I was a young kid, like for some reason, just like having a chip on my shoulder, just like meaning to work super hard and prove myself or something. And I, I right. say that from a place of like self-awareness because I'm working on it and I don't think it's serving me anymore, especially as a founder. Um, so like, some examples of this growing up. Um, I remember, like, I think they had us take like the, the, some version of the SAT. That's like the early version, like the PS, whatever, something that's like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the mini, the one you take the your mini, junior year. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The mini SAT. So, or the PSAT, whatever I, I started taking, or even the PSSS, something like that. There was one that you took like your freshman year. That was like the lightest version. And that's when I learned about the SAT. And I literally started studying for the SAT when I was like in sophomore year. Like on my own during the summers, I found an SAT software online that was in beta mode. So they were offering it for free. And I just would go to town on it without any, my parents never asked me to like, I was, it was just something, I don't know what was huh. going on inside my head. I just had this like really intense motivation and I worked super hard on, on all these things. Um, you know, did all the like extracurricular, like leadership, like try to check all the boxes. Um, and then that's kind of how I got into Harvard. And then the same thing happened when recruiting came around. Um, I was like, I just asked myself like very candidly, like what is, what is like the hardest thing to get? What is considered most successful? Like, let me just do that while I figure out like, that will be a good launch pad. It was, it was so short-sighted. It was, it was very kind of just coming from a place of scarcity. Um, mm. And really just though, genuinely the coming from a place of wanting to do right by my parents right. um, and just making assumptions around what that looked like. Um, and so that is how I made most of my decisions for mm. most of my life. 
it was not as direct as like, what do mom and dad want? But it was like this, it was this internal compass that was anchored around emotionally anchored around, um, feeling good about myself. If I knew that it would make those around me, those who love me feel good and and feel safe and feel proud. Um, and so that's why I was so risk averse for so long. Um, and so when I spent a couple years at Bain, I actually, I mean, the work was really hard um, and, and the hours were, were difficult, um, but I actually really loved the company for, for many, many reasons. And uh, there's definitely obviously criticisms you can have of, of most corporations and, and like corporate structures inherently, I think, are, are lead to very specific problems for the individuals that work for them. Right. But, uh, you know, all things considered, I, I was a huge fan of Bain and I, I still am very like close to some folks there and, and I loved it. But during my time there, I think the big realizations that I was having was that ultimately like when I, when I left Harvard, my personal motivation was to eventually become a thought leader in business. Mm. I really wanted to get to a place where I could shape structures and institutions to increase diversity and leadership, have more Asian women, more Southeast Asian women in positions of power. And so I wanted to do that not only from a place of representation, but from a place of influence. Mm. And when I was at Bain, I was like, dang, that's going to be the grind. I was like, by the time I get there, I'm going to be tired as hell. I might be a completely different person. My values might have shifted from trying to fit into those molds, getting up that ladder. I was like, I'm not willing to risk that. Like, that's not, I'm not going to do that. And so that's when I was like, well, what's a fast way to accelerate my learning curve? I was like, being a founder could be it. And I gave <laughs> Kim a ring like two years ago. And I was like, what do you think? And she's like, I've been waiting for this day. She's like, I've literally been waiting for this day. So that's kind of how it all played out and how we kind of ended up making, building on some together. That's cool. Um, I, I will say, I, you know, obviously I've, I've been, um, through my school experience and, and having friends work and working in various firms, I think Bain of all the, the consulting companies, the, the best culture in a way of support. Um, you know, we have friends like Jason Lee of Jubilee, who's also a Bain alum. And, you know, he shares stories of just their continued support and the connections that exist. And, mm-hmm. you know, once you're one of us, you're always one of us. And I think that's, it has to have one of those intrinsic values that are lifelong other otherwise the, the sacrifices and the pain is just you know it's really it sucks um uh that's cool so tell me more about that moment that led you to because it, it you make it sound like a very logical you know decision tree if you will right like i want to do this consulting sounds hard what are the options let's analyze founding the company like but in that moment like why food, why your sister, and why not only food and your sister, but something that you guys grew up with, and, and a giant homage to not only your parents, but your entire heritage? Yeah. So why is my sister first? I would say, because that's kind of what happened first. I I was just admiring her from afar. I mean, not afar, she's my sister, but like watching her <laughs> career play out. Cause I, I, I didn't really know the ins and outs of it, but I was just like, she was Forbes 30 under 30 at age 24. She was speaking at conferences around the world. Mm. And I was like, just like, wow, like she's a rock star. I, I was so amazed by her. And, and so I just thought like, she would, it just makes sense. Like objectively, whether your sister, you're my sister or not, like you are crushing it. And I want to kind of, I literally at the time I was like, I want to attach my, like, I want to grab onto her coattails. I was like that because I, I, I was like stagnant. I was like, I'm like an, basically an analyst. I was an AC, whatever. I was like an analyst at a corporate, like, yes, like Bain is super prestigious, but like, I mean, I just felt like I was replaceable at that point. I mean, that's like the honest mm. answer while she was sure. like making a name for herself. And I was like, I'm just gonna, maybe she's gonna, maybe I can trick her into doing something with me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I, I, yeah, I just really admired her and her work. Um, And so I thought that she'd be a great co-founder. We had no idea what the company would be at that point, but we were actually at, um, had a trip planned. So she was later on traveling through Central and South America for seven months. um, Mm. And I had a trip planned to meet up with her while I was still working at Bain. And so we had discussed this on the phone 
um, agreed, like we would talk more about it. And then on that trip where we dug into it, literally like the most picturesque, like version of this conversation is us like climb, like climbing mountains, um, in Peru, <laughs> walking through the salt flats and like figuring out what our company is, which like actually happened. Um, like that's where we came up with many of the ideas around Omsom. We just talked a lot on these really long walks through the incredible nature in Peru and Bolivia. And, um, ultimately why we landed in food was because there, we, we basically felt like it was one of the the realms in which both her and I had the deepest passion for. Like mm. I was working a ton at Bain and I was still making time to make these like really incredible meals. She was doing pop-ups in London um, for folks cooking Vietnamese food, trying to share our culture. And neither of us had like a kind of culinary professional background, but we had like just taken on so much meaning around food as a love language, as a connection to our identity, as a reflection of narratives and history and culture. Um, and so it just, it felt really natural on, on, as far as the emotional side of things, but mm. we battled intensely with the, the actual executional part of that, of, of the food world, because it's a really hard business. And we were like, do we right. really, really like, we kept looking back, like, really, should we just reconsider? Like the margins are super slim. Like you need to hit scale for the business model to make sense. Operational complexity with not only physical product, but perishable physical product. Like, do we really want to do that to ourselves? And we, we just couldn't imagine anything else. We, we tried and we were like, no, this is it. We got to do it. <laughs> but you need that analytical, sensible, almost CEO brain to not put the brakes on the fun and the creativity, but approach it with the discipline and sort of the, the caution that it requires because yes, food is crazy. Um, CP packaged CPG is even crazier because um, you're, you're going straight D to C or direct to consumer for, for now. But in that world, um, it's, you know, uh, shelf space or, you know, slotting fees or, you know, what is your competitor? And are you always going to be pegged as a are you going to be stuck in the international aisle, right, at, at the local grocer or um, things like that? And, you know, those are the, some of the themes that you know, I think earlier you mentioned, you know, uh, mutual friends of ours, you know, Carol has followed a, a very similar path. Um, she chose booze, which is, uh, you know, Korean booze to pay homage to her culture and, and to start a business there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also had Danny Tran, who's, you know, taking his parents or his wife's four generations of fish sauce legacy and bringing it stateside. And it's so cool because, I think in this decade, we're going to see more of that where um, no more assimilation, no more trying to appease, um, not to demonize, but not to appease um, the majority white culture that exists in this country to say that we always have to, you know, um, think about what we want to cook for our white friends when they come over, because no, we're going to cook what we want to cook and we're going to make them learn it and, you know, um, not have those awkward cultural moments because food is really our love language as an entire um, culture. Not, not, you know, not, it's not, again, it's not specific to Asia, but I think when you immigrate, when you become refugees and you have to come to a foreign land, the only thing that you can duplicate to make you actually feel as home as you can is food. Um, so very curious on the Amsam journey, um, share with the audience, the, why the name, what it means and why is it so important for you and your sister to have that name represent you guys? Yeah. So, um, Omsom is based on a Vietnamese word, Omsom, uh, and it roughly translates to riotous, rowdy, noisy, rambunctious. And it's basically like what your parents would say to you when you, they were scolding you for causing a ruckus. Like, you know, you're just like jumping around on the couch, like flailing your arm, that kind of stuff. And your parents would be like, Oh, I'm so loud. Like you're so loud. Be quiet. And we thought that that captured our energy, like reclaiming that word and using it to kind of to reflect our energy as an unapologetic brand. Um, we're, you know, we're here to be proud and loud of our flavors, our perspectives, our stories as Asian Americans. No longer should we be diluted and like relegated to these sad parts of the grocery store um, with like 
jars of sauce that are rep like just representing whole countries um, and that are not even made for our, our own palates. We we were just like, that is that is a, a thing of the past. We're here for something really different and we're here to create that future. Um, mm -hmm. And so Om Som is, is, is a nod to our energy and our kind of um, uh, how we'd like to see the food world change and, and the world more broadly culturally change. Um, and I also think it's a nod to how historically um, Asian Americans have been seen as submissive. And we, we think that like our, this, this generation is really changing that we're, we're coming into our voice. We're making waves in American culture um, and yeah. American diets. And that's, that's the energy that Amsam is trying to bring. That is so cool. Um, take me to a place that is sort of the, the creative genius behind the brand, right? That the brand, the colors pop, the, the, the logo and, and the font, they look like, you know, um, handwritten Asian language in, in certain, you know, um, I guess glances. Uh, you've picked for now Vietnamese, Thai, and Filipino as your first three countries to represent flavors from. Take us through the R&D process or the, uh, the brainchild of not only saying we want to do our food, which for you would have been Vietnamese, but to expand the portfolio, if you will, a little bit. And, and how was that selection process done? And, and how did you develop those flavors? Yeah. So, you know, for, for us, I think we, our ambition was to, to represent Asian flavors in a, in a way that honored and celebrated the communities and the cuisines represented. Um, we knew that was, a, we felt that deeply for Vietnamese cuisine as Vietnamese Americans were like, you know, th this isn't being done well for us right now. Uh, but we knew that was the case for other Asian cuisines too. But we also were very adamant about us not being the source of authority on other cuisines. Mm. Um, so we had this ambition, but we were like, we're not going to stand here and be like, yes, we're the expert on Thai food and Filipino food. Let's conflate all of them. This isn't Pan-Asian, like, you know, yeah. food. like we, we wanted to, to pay homage on for every single cuisine to, to that community. And so that's why it was super important for us to get folks from these backgrounds, from these countries who are experts in these cuisines in mm. our corner, working with us on each product. It was, it was absolutely necessary. And so we work with our tastemakers. Um, they're our chef partners. They're kind of these I iconic Asian chefs who are driving the thinking around their respective cuisines um, and who are frankly just really good people, awesome people that we, we are so thankful to work with. And so um, that's how we thought about like making sure that we, um, did right by these communities. Um, and they like are super involved at every single point in the process from like, what dish should we do all the way down to, um, you know, bringing this to their communities. Um, so the R and D process is a really, um, iterative, um, involved process where mm. we are testing these products in the kitchen with them, multiple versions of them upwards of seven, eight, eight times. So we would, work on a version and then we would go create samples of it ourselves that were, you know, shelf stable, that were safe to be produced at scale. Um, no preservatives. We'd go back to them with samples. We'd cook them in the kitchen, test them a bunch of different ways, get feedback, go back at, at the counter again, try again and come back with, we would just do this again and again and again until the product was super tight. And, you know, many brands, would not bring on chefs in this capacity. They, a lot of brands I think would be scared to bring on restaurant right. chefs. Um, obviously there's a model where you're just like kind of selling your name that that's not the model at all mm -hmm. that we, what we did. We were like, you need to sign off on this product and give us the green light that you feel comfortable having this be a representation of your restaurant and your life's work. And that is a huge, like, you know, that's a huge ask. And also that was a huge challenge for us because these chefs are used to making things in the kitchen, which right. is so different than making things at scale. Um, but ultimately, we were we were willing to kind of take on that challenge because we it was that important for us that the product lived up to you know all that we right. have to say about being proud and loud. Very cool. Um, so last we heard from about your sister was in this picturesque uh, part <laughs> in South America where you've decided to sort of chart, chart your own path of destiny to create this thing. Um, how has it been working with your sister? Where did you take it from there? 
you know, what were some of the, cause she had to relocate herself back from Europe and you had mm-hmm. to, you know, um, exit from consulting and then sort of get this off the ground. Um, what are some of the best parts about working with your sister? Earlier you had mentioned this is sort of how we divide our responsibilities, um, you know, creative and, and more tactical. Um, share, share with us about that, because I think that's something that most immigrant siblings, refugee siblings, sometimes think about doing. They go, there's no way in hell I'm going to work with my brother, right? Or, <laughs> you know, because we, we, we focus on our childhood, um, you know, our, our constant struggles and our butting of mm-hmm. heads. Um, mm-hmm. Share with us your journey from your perspective with Kim in going from idea to where it is today. Yeah. So, you know, from that I that idea, I think we we were like, yeah, we were so excited at that point. We're like, let's do this. We had so much energy. And, and so it was like a really fun process from there, trying to figure out how do we, you know, turn this into a real product. It was really fun. And then and then it got hard. <laughs> it got hard soon after. Um where like, you know, mostly me, I'm second guessing myself. Uh, you know, I, I don't I like went from a really secure job to to like kind of feeling like I was in limbo floating around and people would be like, oh, cute, you're doing a food startup. That's so cute. Um, um, and I, I found that kind of insulting. And so it definitely was hard. And I think um, she didn't understand some of the struggles that I was going through because she, in some ways, like it just came more naturally to her of like, she just didn't ask questions. She was like, yep, we're doing it. And I, you know, I would go back and forth and be like, oh my God, like, you know, how am I, I would worry about money, which was a very real thing. Like, you know, as child children of refugees we don't have generational wealth and that was a huge challenge for us too um i had a lot of issues around money scarcity and like how i how i would i would just have anxiety over it and um i think like it was it sometimes at times it was hard because i didn't feel understood by her because she just was like this is this is normal like she just she could just roll with it and i couldn't and so that that was pretty interesting i think as sisters you're more likely to juxtapose your experiences um because you're just similar in a lot of ways and you are used to comparing yourself so that was definitely um, one of the challenges but once we like had an idea where there was a lot of like time where we spent like brainstorming and doing a ton of research together. Um, once we had an idea, then we started, like we got back on like this path of like, okay, we know what we're doing. Like, let's move towards it. Uh, and, and, and since then I would say that, like, there's, oh, there's just two sides to working with your sister on, on one hand. It is such a, wonderful gift to be on this journey of all journeys with somebody who cares about you so deeply, who knows you inside out, who is going to be forgiving with you, maybe not not patient at all times because sisters have baggage, but at least forgiving in the end along the way. Like for me, this, this journey of being an entrepreneur has been definitely the most challenging thing I've ever done and definitely the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad I get to share that with her. Um, and then on the other hand though, I would say that it's very challenging because sisters can be petty as hell. (laughs) Like that's a, that's a real thing. And it has challenged us to be increasingly more vulnerable with each other, um, more patient, more forgiving, showing up wholeheartedly and giving each other the benefit of the doubt, trying to see each other for our intentions and not our actions. Like it's really challenged us in those ways. Um, so yeah, there's absolutely two sides of it and I'm, I'm really grateful for her. She's so patient with me. Oh my God. <laughs> I'll ask her about that. Um, <laughs> who, who told your parents first about this? Um, <laughs> I don't know if there was like, we did this weird, I don't know if other Asian kids have this with their parents, but like, when there's news that we don't know how they'll feel about it, we don't outright like sit them down and tell them. We just kind of mention it like in <laughs> from a distance in passing. We go, yeah, yeah, we might not, you know, like we did that whole thing. It's like when you first have a boyfriend and you're, you don't want to tell your mom, you're like, yeah, if his friend, he's a boy, you know, like that's what we did with the company. It's like, I'm going to leave my job first, you know, like that was the exact approach. And so we kind of alluded to it and then like literally took us months before we were straight up like, this is what's happening. And I, so I don't really, I can't pinpoint like one moment. I think her and I were both doing the same thing for a little while. Um, and then outright we're like, this is happening. And they, I think they had like, my mom had a little moment of like, 
denial. She's just kind of like, <laughs> that sounds cool. So are you interviewing for other jobs? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, you know, a little bit of the denial. But ultimately, I think my dad was the first to be like, this is happening. And then my mom and my dad were like, okay, this is happening. And then they've been nothing but supportive. Um, mm. If you follow us on Instagram, we put out some content sometimes about my dad and his um, his incredible like and also adorable ways of, of supporting us and and um he'll he just like all hours of the day literally sometimes 3 a.m i'll get whatsapps from him emails from him with his bu- his business ideas for our company of just like have you considered blah 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 and my favorite was one time he pitched us the concept of influencers without knowing what influencers are oh, he wow. was like i was watching youtube and i have noticed there are a lot of people who make content about cooking Vietnamese food for non-Vietnamese audiences. Have you considered reaching out to these folks? Maybe sending them your product? Maybe having them use it in a video? Wonder if this is something that can be done. And I was like, yes, dad, that's literally, you're pitching us influencers and I love it. Um, And that is just like my dad to a T, just like always trying to help us. Um, He very much is a cheerleader and a supporter. And yeah, we're super thankful that our parents have been nothing but like they just believe in us wholeheartedly and that that means everything to me that's cool i mean look i i I look at your story and you know i think it's there's so many lessons there that i think is um especially timely now but i think you know evergreen classic in you can do both right um choosing the highest levels of achievement in academia or in corporate life does not preclude you or exclude you from pursuing something passionate later down the line. I think um, when I talk to some friends and I felt that at times you feel like you've chosen this path and because tenacity and longevity are also very valued traits, particularly within our cultures that you pick something and you do it for the rest of your life. And, And so this weird dumb burden of like having to choose something at like 2021 and the expectation that you're going to do it forever and the idea of a career change is something literally so foreign to our parents that they're like what are you doing and i think what i'm also hearing from your story when I say, is this layer and i've heard it from carol and with danny and with tony and with everybody else who's sort of taken this cultural approach much later in life is we came here to be american why are you doing something that is home? Like, shouldn't you aspire to do, shouldn't you aspire to achieve the pinnacle of American life? Mm. And I think that is the way that our parents see themselves as Korean first, Vietnamese first. And really like that dash part isn't really there for them because their identity is different. And I think for us collectively as this new generation and beyond to say, no, 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 no. Like, doing our thing here is actually the American part, right? Because America doesn't, different discussion about what American culture actually is, but it is the compilation of, you know, two, 300 years of other people's culture coming in here and mixing together, right? So I think that is something that I hope that more of our generation um, and beyond continues to feel proud about, Mm. that you can take something that your parents might not want to take to market. But I think ultimately, too, is that whether it is creating a food or a brand or um, writing stories, um, books about our experiences, it's this entire general theme that our stories matter and we can share it in a number of different ways. And while we may not have believed this earlier in our lives, like, that is actually the American part that anybody mm-hmm. can come here. You mentioned that in your number nine, it was, you know, anybody can come here and make it their own. And that is actually true only. And if, and only you believe that you get to define the terms of what success is. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, even at your um, early part of your career and in your journey, you've made your parents proud. You've made many of us proud. Right. Um, and you're just getting started. You're literally just getting started. Um, 
and and I say that because you're you're very early on in the you know the brand building process. You probably haven't made any money yet, so you have to get to that <laughs> point where you, you you can make a lot of money. But I think as we see the um, not only the the cultural taste but actual palate taste change around the country, mm. um, you know, um, crappy food no more, racist food no more. People are going to want to choose and look for authentic foods that. Um, the the big box CPGs aren't going to cook up in a lab with a bunch of people that don't look like me and you, right? Yes. Like yes, exactly. And, <laughs> and, and whether and whether or not you and Kim make this into the next big thing, or somebody then says, "Let me partner with you and then take it to every grocery shelf." However, that may be, there will come a day eventually where people will taste this food and people are going to explore it because. This is part getting people who look like me and you to rediscover our food. But this is also a part of making this so normal in American yes. cuisine yes. that the white family in Nebraska can go to the Kroger and pick it up and be like, exactly. hey, we're making, yeah. you know, we're making lemongrass pork. today." And there's nothing weird about that. There shouldn't be anything yes. weird about that. Right. So I think normalizing it is sort of the goal and not always being exotified. Um, no. I know that's not a word, but, you know, <laughs> and, and always othered. Um, so I, I yeah. think what you are doing is, is amazing. Um, you know, when I, I discovered you on LinkedIn, cause I think Carol had like something that you had posted and I was like, holy crap, this is, and I, this was three months ago before your giant, like PR massive storm of amazingness and being sold out. <laughs> I think this was pre-launch and I was like, holy crap, this is awesome that somebody who has this traditional track has gone, you know, veered left a little bit. And then to say, I'm going to lean in totally to my culture and to build something because if it's with, it's when the people with your credentials do this, that people go, whoa, right? Because mm. if you don't have your resume and then you go do something, it's like, it's not as, it doesn't create as much of a, holy crap moment for most people because mm. then the question is why would somebody who went to harvard then went to bain like why is this I do get that question a lot. <laughs> right but but it is because you you see that right, as right the opportunity. i wish that i wish that wasn't the case i really wish it wasn't but i i, I totally hear you and i and i'm definitely we get that question like from investors from from press for sure um and i think it's absolutely right i think that we're like well because the future that we see is where this is a massive freaking opportunity. And if you don't see that future, you're probably not the right partner for us or investor for mm -hmm. us. Like that's, that's a lot of the conversations that we have. It's a bet yep. on the future. And yep. our bet is that Asian flavors will be in demand just like any others, just like, you know, sitting right between your tomato sauce and your olive oil is how we yep. say it. Um, that's, that's what we believe. And we think that's the future and we're just getting started and restaurants are driving the charge. They're doing an incredible job, like accelerating adoption of Asian flavors around the country, educating consumers on what right. this should actually taste like. And so, yeah, I think Kim and I on one, and from one place, we do it from our heart and soul because yeah. we believe that our communities deserve to be represented in a way that, you know, we can stand by that and say like, yeah, I feel, I feel good about that. Like that's, that's what I, maybe what I ate growing up or if it's not, it's makes me still feel connected and, and proud for the way that's being shown. And then if it's not, you know, it's partially because of that. And then the other part is because, yeah, of course it's a big opportunity. Asian Americans are an, a, like a massive voice in this country, huge buying power. And then beyond that, we're changing the way that like, American culture exists and American yeah. diets are. So yeah, we, we absolutely agree with that. <laughs> I, I, I get it all the time. They're like, why Jerry, well, Jerry, after, you know, why the hell are you doing an Asian American podcast and building a media company around doing more? I said one, because I want, I didn't have this growing up, neither did you. And I want to leave it for my kids. And two, similar to you and your sister, we're not stupid. We see the opportunity. <laughs> this is not only is our 6% a more valuable 6% than any other 6% of the American population. We're going to have more interest in what we want to say. And brands are starting to finally realize, and they're all late to the game, that we have more buying power and we're only actually going to interact with brands and give money to people who want to engage with us in an authentic way. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and so it's, you know, it's not 
I, and I think that duality, right, of doing something that speaks from your heart, but also understanding the game and, and forecasting trends and knowing in your heart of hearts that this is a smart business play. That duality is something that I've struggled with a lot myself because, mm. you know, not quite a sellout, but it's like, if you're going to do it, just do it from the heart. And it's like, well, mm. I'm not a charity either, dude. Right. Like, so, <laughs> um, and if you go completely opportunistic, then you're sort of really selling out your culture and just taking the, you know, but you, you got to do it authentically and you got to, you know, involve the right people, take money from the right people and, and yes. partner along the way. So um, thank you so much for your time, Vanessa. This has been amazing. Um, I, I want to end the episode the same way that we end all of our episodes. Um, so the name of the show is Dear Asian Americans. The idea of this entire project, this podcast and this entire movement is conversations to us and from us, but ultimately for us so that a younger version of Vanessa somewhere, perhaps stuck in a town that's 95, 8.5% <laughs> white or not really feeling proud of, you know, Korean, Vietnamese, American heritage um, and not even young kids or friends or even older cousins who haven't had this opportunity to have these realizations of I am who I am and therefore I can be proud and authentic and happy. Um, these, these, you know, these, these are who these uh, folks conversations are for. Um, we get letters from some people from sometimes that um, are from the middle of the country. They go, I don't see anybody that looks like me every day, mm. any day. And this yeah. seeing people that look like me and knowing that I'm not alone mm. has really made a positive impact in my life. So, you know, it, it just it, it warms my heart. It's uh, it, it makes the, the the work worth it. Um, so help us close out the show. Um, share with share what you would love to share with the Asian American community in the form of a love letter. So I will start. And if you could help us finish out the show, dear Asian Americans. Hmm. Dear Asian Americans. Um, I, um, you know, I'm so honored to be a part of this collective group. Um, to identify as an Asian American. Um, I think the past couple of years, uh, we've seen how Asian Americans can really, um, we've always had this potential, but I think coming into our own voice, we've really seen how we can um, be successful in every industry, shape um, shape American culture, um, drive, drive change and become leaders. I'm on that kind of personal journey and I'm really excited to see all the ways that we do that. But I think the biggest message that I have is asking us to support each other, uplift each other, and, you know, not come from a place of scarcity and not buy into this, this f false, um, this lie that there can only be, you know, one of us in a position of leadership, or there can only be so many successful, you know, ones of us that, that the default successful um, group, you know, looks male or looks white. I, I think that there there's room for all of us. Um, and that I, I hope that we can come from a place of abundance and support um, and um, uplift each other. That's, that's something that Kim and I, like, you know, we're trying to build our company on. And I, I would, you know, ask that other Asian Americans try to come from that place. I know it's hard because we've been pitted against each other at times and our parents um, often felt like they needed to survive and in doing so we're elbowing each other out. But I think it's times are different. And I think if we can, can prioritize and, and really um, work from the heart in that way and, and try to um, amplify each other's voices and influence, it can be a really powerful thing. Thank you. Always got to grow the pie. Everybody yeah. can eat. It's going to be a giant pie of flavorful food <laughs> with all, all sorts of awesome stuff. Look, I, you, you bring up a good point. Um, Stop thinking in the in the mindset of you know scarcity. Yeah. Um, the, the the moment somebody says, "Aren't there enough Asian American podcasts?" I stop listening to them because why? No, nobody ever asks the the white guy making his new business podcast. Hey, aren't there enough business? Nobody. Nobody, nobody goes to <laughs> nobody goes to right. Nobody goes to a a white male author and says, "Hey, stop." There's you you've written enough books, right? Right, right, right. And and why are we being limited to a finite number of shelves, a finite number of SKUs? Let's not look at it in the perspective of 6% of American population. Let's also look at it from the perspective of one third of global population and what that means and what our heritage means. And this is not an us against them. This is everybody wins. 
And if we can win along the way while sharing our stories and our food and our culture, um, what better way to actually pay respect to the sacrifices that our parents made and to leave a little bit of something for our children and beyond so that they can look at us and say, holy shit, mom and dad did some good shit when they were you know, going through life. So um, thank you so much. I will see you soon in the recap episode. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like, but um, <laughs> maybe Kim will share some Vanessa stories that might be news to you or you guys uh, will reconnect and, and share some good stories together. So thank you so much. Congratulations on your early success. Um, I, I know you're not done yet and I know you're not satisfied, <laughs> but, to be, but to be recognized um, is a nice nod of validation, especially from some uh, household media names that are finally recognizing that it is damn time for us to put our food on TV and on the front pages of these websites. So Vanessa, thank you for everything you're doing. I will talk to you soon. Jerry, it was so lovely. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Vanessa. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did having it. So amazing to hear her story and so amazing to hear her ambition, her purpose, and her vision for what Amsam can and will be. So best of luck to Vanessa and to Kim on creating and growing this amazing business together. If you found this interview insightful and fun, please do share it out with somebody who needs to hear it. Share it out on your Instagram, screenshot this and post it on tag us at the Asian Americans. You can also tag me personally at Jerry J. Wan. Follow and like us on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn to search the Asian Americans and the Instagram DM box as well as our email inbox Hello at TheEurasianAmericans.com is always open for your questions, comments, suggestions, and nominations. Or if you just want to talk about life, talk about your Asian American identity, happy to have a conversation with you as well. Uh, We want this to be a place where we can build community and to share stories and always, always welcome uh, feedback from our listeners. Thanks again for tuning in. I wish you all the happiness, health, and safety in the world until we meet again. Thanks again for tuning in to the Eurasian Americans. This has been your host, Jerry Wan.